Good evening. Tonight's scripture is Matthew 5, verses 17 through 22. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan. I serve as one of the elders here at Grace Downtown, also a pastoral intern. And as always, it is a joy for me for me to be able to be up here in front of you all tonight to uh, share God's word together. We've been going through a sermon series that we're calling uh, Jesus's Bible. How did Jesus view the scripture as he had it? What for us would be considered the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing that series together tonight, thinking about his view of the law. Will you all please pray with me as we invite the spirit to come into this time. Lord God, we acknowledge that we need you, God, and we pray that you would open up your word for us. There is good news for all who would trust in you in this passage, and God, we pray that you would let that shine tonight, that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that you would reveal your will for us here tonight. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. When I was growing up, my Mom was a big fan of music from the 60s and 70s, and so that meant that a lot of times when we were on car rides or just hanging out around the house, even, we would listen to the Beatles. She was a big fan of the Beatles, and I remember really liking the Beatles. I enjoyed their music. I uh, I think I especially liked the song Penny Lane when I was a kid. If I were Andrew, I might sing that song for y'all tonight, but I'll, I'll spare you of that. You know, and I understood that they were one of the most famous bands in the world, one of the most famous bands of all time, but I'm not sure when I was a kid I really appreciated why that was. I didn't really understand what set their music and their message to apart from everybody else. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older and I had some, uh, some friends who were big Beatles fans who started to try and educate me about why they were so great and pointing me to things like the creative ways that they arranged their songs that nobody had ever done before how they weren't afraid to incorporate really serious subject matter into popular music. You know, the the poetic lyricism of some of their lyrics. And then the way that their music really embodied and shaped a whole culture in ways that, you know, no popular band had ever done before. You know, there was something new and fresh about this music that changed popular music forever. And it's rare for somebody to come onto the scene like that and leave that kind of an impact. But when they do, the culture usually will sit up and take notice. You know, on the one hand, you'll have 
the fans and the crowds who adore them and love their message and their new ideas and follow them and want to pursue them all over the world sometimes. But then you also always have this other side, the, uh, the skeptics who doubt their value, who maybe don't agree with some of the ways they're trying to change things, think that they're dangerous. And that's the position that Jesus finds himself in here tonight in our text. This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. And at this point in his ministry, he's surrounded by huge crowds. There is a big following as he speaks these words. People are curious about his teaching. They're also curious about the things he's doing, the amazing signs that he's performing, the miracles that he's performing. He's making big waves in his part of the world, but people are still trying to figure him out. They're trying to figure out what exactly he's all about. What is his deal? Why does he say the things he says? Why does he do the things he does? Why does he talk about the law the way that he does? What does he mean by that? You know, that is the particular focus of his uh, lesson for us tonight. You know, one thing we have to clarify up front, especially I think if you're, you know, someone who is maybe new to the Christian faith, who hasn't read the Bible very much before, first of all, we're really glad that you're here and we welcome you. Um, but whenever you see this, this phrase, the law, this capital L law that Jesus is talking about here, what he's talking about specifically are like the commands and the instructions that God had given to his people and for what for us would be the Old Testament. He's not talking about human law in general here as it um, you know, applies through governments and other parts of society. He has a specific focus here on the law of the scriptures, you know, books like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And any time we start to reflect on the role of the law in our lives, whether we're looking at the teaching of Christ or the teaching of Paul and the rest of the New Testament, the other apostles who expound on these things, or even when we're looking at the Old Testament as it seeks to apply the law, there are two opposing errors that we always need to be aware of. On the one side, there's legalism. There's a way to overemphasize the law in such a way that it brings unnecessary guilt onto people, that it makes them feel guilty for things that they should not be feeling guilty for. You know, there's a good chance that uh, there are people in this room who may have had experience in churches like that in the past, where this was the way that the law was preached, where it was hung over them, a heavy weight, a burden that brought about shame instead of good news. The real teaching of Jesus is a balm for your soul, if that's where you're coming from. That's not his message. So on the one side, there's legalism. On the other side, there's uh, what uh, you might call an anti-law attitude, being opposed to the law, where the commands of God have little or no value at all. You know, this can take a lot of different forms. It might just be apathy. It might be a belief that you don't have any need for the law, for God's law. There's also a more theological form of this argument that says that, well, Jesus came, and like he says here, you know, he fulfilled the law, so he did everything. So I don't have to worry about the law then, right? You know, that law stuff doesn't matter anymore. We're all about grace now, right? So this second uh, potential error, this anti-law attitude, that's what Jesus is being accused of here by some of the people who are following him and listening to his message and hearing him preach. They think he wants to get rid of the law. He's trying to cancel the law. The law is old. 
It's past its time. It's done. That's what they think he's saying. But what's being talked about here, the law, these commandments that God gave to his people Israel had for centuries been, you know, more than just a religious thing for the people of Israel. These had, um, the law of God affected every part of their life. It affected, you know, the way they worshipped in the temple, the way they worshipped on their own, the way they related to one another in society, the way they related to the government. The law was applied to every part of society by the religious and political leaders. So this is no uh, small accusation that they're making against Jesus here. So these rumors are swirling about that Jesus is opposed to the law. So he needs to clarify some things. Because in reality, he could not have a higher view of the law. The law is so important to Jesus that he spends his life fulfilling everything required in the law. You could say that he makes it his life's mission to fulfill the law. How can you have a higher view of the law than that? So with that as his context, Jesus starts to teach about the law. I have to say up front, we're going to deal with some, uh, some pretty heady topics tonight as uh, we go through this. And there are you know, points in my life, I know in my own studies, where uh, these can appear to be some murky waters we're about to wade through, wade through together trying to balance an appropriate view of the law that avoids these errors. Uh, But like everything Christ teaches, there's a bountiful harvest at the end of this for us, the end of this journey. So let's dive on in. We're going to focus on two things in particular that he draws out tonight. The law as timeless and the law is about the heart. It's timeless and it's about the heart. So the law is timeless. As long as the earth exists, the law will exist, and it is meant to serve a vital place in our lives. The calling to obey the law and to teach the law will continue as long as the earth is around, as long as any of us are around. Jesus doesn't change the law. That's not what he came to do. He came to clarify some things that had been points of confusion, maybe. He came to... Um, correct some errors in teaching about the law, but he doesn't come to change the law. He bases all of his teaching, actually, on the law. But once Christ comes and fulfills the law, the role of the law now takes on a very different role in our lives than what it may have before Christ. The text of the law hasn't changed at all, but now Christ has come and fulfilled the law. It changes some of the ways we read and apply the law. Some people might describe this as being under a new administration of the law, that Christ has come and fulfilled the law and changed the way that we read and apply it now. There were many parts of the law that were always looking ahead to some greater fulfillment or someone who was coming, who was going to be a greater fulfillment. And once that person has come, we relate to the law a little bit differently now. So Christ's fulfillment of the law, as he says here, changes how we apply certain parts of the law. The sacrificial system, for example, it was truly good and beneficial and effective for the people of Israel during that administration of the law. But once God sent his son to be a perfect sacrifice on behalf of his people, you know, it wouldn't really make sense to continue on offering sacrifices, right? His sacrifice lacked nothing. When he died on the cross, there's no way to improve or add anything to his sacrifice. There's nothing that we can do to make it better, to make it more effective for us. 
It was already perfect and complete. You know, our guilty consciences can only be resolved by the sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing we can do to add on to that. So the old sacrificial system was always pointing to its perfect fulfillment. Same thing with the laws that are sometimes called purity laws. You know, there were certain things you had to do to be able to come into worship or to give offerings and sacrifices, you know, physical things to make yourself clean. Other aspects of these laws uh, were related to foods, certain foods that you were um, commanded to avoid because they represented uncleanness. They were to be avoided. But again, Christ shows throughout his ministry that these were pointing ahead to a fulfillment that was to come. He regularly comes into contact, actually, with people who should have been considered unclean. And the very touch of Jesus actually purifies them. It removes impurity. Everything that the purity laws were supposed to signify is fully accomplished in Christ. And when we feel spiritually dirty or unclean, we are invited to come and sit at the feet of Christ to be truly seen for who we are and to hear his good news and to be forgiven and to receive a blessing. You know, we could do the same exercise with the laws related to the nation state of Israel. They were always pointing ahead to the kingdom of God, and Jesus reveals that kingdom to be a spiritual kingdom. You know, he doesn't establish a nation state. He actually submitted to the Roman government. His kingdom is a spiritual one. And these parts of the law, that doesn't mean because we apply them differently that we ought to ignore them. They still teach us true things about God, about who Christ was and who who he was going to be. They help us to understand Jesus' ministry better. They are eternal truths in the laws of the sacrificial system and the purity laws and the laws of the state. But that doesn't mean we continue to practice them in the same way. This is why the Apostle Paul says the law has no power over us. That is absolutely true. You know, there's nothing wrong with the substance of the law, even when, from what Paul's saying there. Down to the letter, the law as revealed by God to his people is true and valuable. It serves a vitally important purpose, but it doesn't have the same authority, the same power over our lives once the Christ has come to fulfill that law. You know, one thing we can ask ourselves as we look through the Old Testament, sometimes this can be a challenging truth to apply. As you're looking through things that are laid out as commands in the Old Testament, maybe ask the question, would it bring honor to Christ if I were to practice this in my life? Would it bring honor to Christ? If he's the fulfillment of the law, then our relationship to the law ought to be about honoring Christ. So would giving a burnt offering bring honor to Christ? Well, no, his death accomplished everything a burnt offering might ever have accomplished. Does abstaining from certain foods bring honor to Christ? Well, he actually teaches about this and tells his followers that these food laws serve their purpose, but those laws are no more in his kingdom. Would it bring honor to Christ to love our neighbors? Would it bring honor to Christ to be a faithful child, a faithful friend, a faithful spouse? Would it bring honor to Christ to use the name of the Lord with reverence and respect? You know, absolutely, to each of these. Every part of the law points us to Christ, and he's the ultimate purpose of every part of the law, and he performs everything that the law requires. 
It's when we read the law, we're absolutely right to think of what it says about our Savior, but that's not the only way to read and apply the law. This part of the law is what's sometimes called the moral law, laws related to our relationship to God and our neighbors that Christ not only accomplishes perfectly on our behalf, but he also commands us to honor and obey in our own lives. The great summary of this moral law uh, is in the Ten Commandments, which I'm guessing a lot of us are familiar with, but there are many other parts of the law that expound on these things too that are still important for us. The last two verses we read tonight, verses uh, 21 and 22 there, this begins a long series of teachings by Jesus about different moral topics in the law. Anger is the one we looked at tonight. He also goes on to talk about marriage, marriage, oaths, uh, vengeance, many other topics as well. And they follow this same pattern. You have heard it said, but I say. You know, one of the main marks of a prophet in the time of Israel was that they spoke the words of the Lord. So you'll often hear this refrain spoken over and over again by the prophets. Thus says the Lord. And then they pronounce some kind of a blessing or more often than not judgment on the people of Israel. And they do so on behalf of the Lord with his authority because they speak the words of the Lord. Jesus has the audacity to say, I'm the fulfillment of the prophets and I say to you, because the only authority that he needs to reference is himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy, the great prophet himself. What Jesus does in these sections is he takes a teaching of the law and he clarifies it, expounds on it, he provides a greater meaning to it while correcting some of the errors that had crept into the religious leaders' thinking over the years in their teaching of the law. So this is where we get into our second point. The law is about the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees that are mentioned in our passage are recurring characters in the Gospels. They often come around to accuse Jesus, to try and trap him in his thinking, to try and catch him off guard. They're part of the skeptical crowd that doubts uh, the value of his ministry for the people. And as a class of religious leaders who have significant political influence, they would often interpret the law in ways that create an unnecessary burden on the people, often out of being overzealous for the law. So overzealous that they don't understand what Christ comes and teaches. Their approach basically turns the law into a performative religion. It's a performance-based religion. It's all about doing X and Y and not doing A, B, and C was a religion of appearances. That meant a lot of the time it turned into just a surface-level religion that was empty on the inside. We see this here in verse 21. The common application of the command, do not murder, it's a simple external application, avoiding anything that really gets into the heart. When the commandment is reduced to this way of thinking to fulfill the command, all you need to do is to avoid doing something. Avoid the physical act of murdering someone and you're off the hook for this command. The Pharisees are applying the law to only what they could judge in other people. You know, and it's easy as we read through the Gospels to sit in judgment over the Pharisees as they are obviously depicted as, you know, the bad guys so many of the times. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we face a lot of the same temptations in our own context It's easy to reduce God's commands down to a performance-based observance, right? How many times are we guilty of doing things just so that other people will see us doing it? 
maybe even just coming to church so that we can be seen there or reading our Bible and praying in the morning just so that we can tell other people later that we did it. You know, we face these same temptations. But Christ sees the inadequacy of this way of applying the law, not because he has some new and special and unseen before and never before seen (laughs) version of the law. You know, God desires mercy, goodness, and love, not empty sacrifices or going through the motions of religion. And that's nothing new. The prophets are full of that kind of language. What Jesus commands here is not an antithesis to the law. When he says, I say, he's not opposing the law. He actually deepens the application of the law all the way down to the heart, to our very own hearts, because that's what he cares about. That's what he's focused on, the hearts of his people. He lays out a few different ways to apply this command, do not murder. First, he addresses the one who is angry with his brother. And he's not talking here about just like a brief moment of anger that passes quickly, that maybe even was righteous anger. What he's talking about is more of a a deep-seated, continuous contempt for somebody. One scholar uh, talking about this phrase thinks that it would actually be better translated as nursing a grudge against somebody. So this first person is holding on to anger in their heart. And then it escalates and Jesus shows what happens when an angry and bitter heart takes over. He gives an example of someone insulting his brother. You know, again, this word insult actually implies more than that. It's sort of a borderline abusive word, actually, in the original Greek. It's not just some kind of a casual insult that's being applied here. And then the third example takes it even another step further than that. The word fool, it gets to the very core of who somebody is. It's a moral statement, calling somebody wicked, not just calling them mistaken or wrong. And the consequences of these different applications escalate too, including the end where Jesus, in a a very sobering way, even mentions the eternal spiritual judgment for calling someone a fool. Christ reminds his people that, yes, earthly courts and church courts play a role in the administration of justice, but it's God's judgment that we should really be concerned about. He sees both our actions and our motivations. He sees outward works, and he sees into our hearts While human courts all too frequently fail and our justice systems are too often inadequate, God's justice will not fail. You know, again, I think that many of us, especially those who've been in the church for a while, might start to feel some tension with some of this language that Jesus offers in this text. You know, it sure feels like he is setting me up for a really high standard that I'm not sure I'm ever actually going to be able to meet. Every single iota and every small dot of the law has to be followed and taught. And then there's this threat of hell hanging over if we disobey. But before getting into those questions, we've got to take a step back. This passage that we read is a, a goldmine for learning about who Jesus is, who his identity was when he came and ministered on earth. He came to fulfill the law, so we know he's the perfection you can even use the word personification of the law. He's the great prophet who fulfills all the prophecy of the ancient scriptures. And as such a prophet, he has the authority to really and truly speak the words of God to us. He also shows that he has authority over the kingdom of heaven. So he's a king. 
He has the authority to declare spiritual judgment over people. He's a judge. And the law is ultimately about the heart, as he teaches it, right? Well, Jesus tells us what his heart is like, too. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How we relate to the law is always going to depend on how we relate to Christ. You know, his thesis statement in this section, if you will, is, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything else that follows rests on that claim. That means that the law that he commands is a description of his character. This is who he is. He will never hold a grudge against his people. He will never insult or abuse you. He will never call you a fool. Instead, he tells you to come and cast your burdens onto him. He is a judge who has the authority to declare judgment, and that means that he has the authority to declare you righteous, to wipe away your sin. He has the authority to reshape our hearts, to fill them with faith and hope and love. And it's with a renewed heart that he has shaped that he calls us to follow him and obey. It can be tempting, I think, for some of us to read verse 17 and just stop there. You know, Christ came to fulfill the law and then just let the rest kind of fade away. But Jesus is both a savior and a teacher. He's a savior and he's a theologian. He reveals himself as a savior, one who fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And then he teaches us how to apply it. He teaches us what exactly his salvation means. And part of the good news that he came to preach, part of the gospel that he brings to us, is the law. The law and the gospel of Christ are not in conflict with one another. The law is part of the gospel. Cheap grace is an enemy of the gospel. The law always needs to be in context, but it is a vital part of Christ's gospel message. If we have a guilty conscience, uh, the law can be a frightening thing when we go through and read some of these passages in the Old Testament. It feels like something that's hanging over us if we come at it with a sense of our own guilt. But we can experience freedom in the law when we view it with a clear conscience. And Christ came to give us that clean conscience and a clean heart. I had an experience this past week when I was driving in my car. I was running a really simple errand. Uh, I wasn't going to be in the car for more than about 10 minutes. You know, I was very familiar with my route. I've driven this route hundreds of times. I know where all the speed cameras are. But then a little ways down the road, I realized I had forgotten my wallet, and it meant I had forgotten my driver's license. And all of a sudden, this really simple drive starts to feel a little bit uneasy for me. And of course, I drove past a police officer, too. You know, normally I feel pretty calm when I'm driving, but this time it felt like the law was ready to jump out and get me. I had a real sense that I was in opposition to the law, and it's kind of all I could think about when I was driving. It's just trying to look normal, trying to look like I wasn't nervous about something. If we always view the law as something that's opposed to us, we will always be afraid when we approach the law. The only way to read the law, sorry, if the only way to read the law is by letting it remind you of how sinful you are, you're missing out. Let it teach you about Christ, too. 
Let the commands of God teach you about the character of God. And then let it guide you to pursue life. The law is there for our good. It's a sad reality that human laws often get so corrupted. But when we get to know God's law, we find that it is not a deterrent to our happiness. Far from it. We talked about the the blessed and happy life last week when we looked at the Beatitudes. When we keep our focus on Christ, the blessed life becomes the goal of the law. We have a perfect model to follow. One who fulfilled the law perfectly. And he calls us to be like him, to imitate him, and to honor him, and to love him as we explore the law on our own. In the verse right before our passage tonight, Jesus is talking about the, the calling of his followers to be salt and light, something that I think a lot of us are probably familiar with. But then he says this at the end of verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever thought about the value of your good works? What it would look like to imitate Christ? What might result from that? Do you know that when we are kind to others, when we promote peace, when we reconcile with our brothers and sisters, when we bring comfort to someone, that we really and truly can bring glory to the God of heaven and earth through what we're doing. That's amazing. This is God's chosen means to spread his glory throughout the earth, to take a bunch of undeserving and sinful people to renew their hearts, to bless them, and to empower them to honor and obey him in such a way that people would give glory to God when they see us. And what a gift the law is when we are in Christ. What a calling we have. And what a Savior we serve, not only who saves us from sin, but renews our hearts and actually allows us to love truly and deeply in the way we interact with other people. Will you all pray with me as we close out? Father God, the law can be an intimidating and scary prospect, but Lord, it is good news, and we pray that you would drive us to the law so that we could be driven to you and that we could love you more and be driven into worship. God, we thank you for the gift of life that you offer us. And we pray in Christ's precious name, amen.